This is the real life story of how I quit my awesome job as a clinical pharmacist of 11 years with no real plan of what I do next. I had a vague notion that I wanted something different to make a greater impact and to use different parts of my brain. I started talking to friends, then friends of friends, and so on and so forth. Now I'm discovering some brilliant career pivots proving that there is life after clinical pharmacy, and I wanted to share my journey with you. This is Career Reconstituted. I'm so delighted to have Dr. Rickon Mehta on Career Reconstituted today, partly because he has a great name. Just joking, and by the way, we're not related. Rickon, or Rick, is a pharmacist, attorney, politician, and entrepreneur with a fascinating and inspiring career path. After pharmacy school and then law school, Rick worked as a clinical pharmacist at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. He then worked as a consumer safety officer followed by deputy division director at the FDA. To follow, he rolled up his sleeves and worked as senior deputy director at the Washington DC Department of Health. In 2019, Rick was the first Indian American candidate to run for U.S. Senate and won the Republican ticket for the state of New Jersey. And where do you go from there? Well, you start a company, of course, and teach a course at a law school. I have so many questions, so let's dive in. Rick, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Monica. Thanks so much for having me. And you're right. We do have such an awesome last name. And if I recall, my grandfather once told me Metha meant accountant, um, although, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes terrible at math, but I don't know if that's true or not, but great to be on with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm the exact polar opposite of an accountant, so um, maybe it's because I defied our <laughs> name. Um, so my first question is the classic nerdy one that I ask all my guests if you could be any drug, which one would you be and why? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me, nor have I thought through that uh, pharmacy school. Okay. So if I could be any drug, I think I think I would be a corticosteroid. Um, I, you know, it's just, you know, what exactly is the mechanism of action, right? It's such a complicated molecule, and yet it gives so many benefits in so many capacities. It has such a widespread, uh, you know, usage. And really, like, it, when it was discovered, it was almost like this, like, you know, this panacea, like, you know, cure-all to everything. And it just has such a great utilitarian um, usage in so many different platforms. So there you have it. I would be a corticosteroid. I love that answer. And you definitely saved lives during COVID. So, um, Rick, let's, get, right. let's dive into the more interesting stuff, shall we? Um, let's say you're at a dinner party Me and too. someone asks you, what do you do? What is your answer? Gosh, Monica, I've been so blessed to wear so many hats and almost live so many lives. Um, but I would say I'm defined by, you know, really three things. I, I'm a father, uh, I'm a husband, um, and an, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, and those three things are somewhat related, um, you know, really, as you're starting off any relationship, you know, whether it's a marriage or parenthood, fatherhood for me, um, or a business, you know, it's really about the relationships you make, the relationships you build, and the relationships you cultivate uh, and keep. And all three of those things are a long-term uh, investment. And so, 
You know, that's really what I tell people. You know, I've worn many hats in terms of being defined by my academic credentials, being defined uh, by the companies I work for. But if there's, you know, like I said, three things that define me as a person, it's being a father, a husband, uh, and a entrepreneur. I think that you put it well because I was struggling to think of how you're going to answer that succinctly. And I don't think there's a way to answer it succinctly given all the things that you've done and that you do. But if they ask you, well, what's your job? Cut to the chase. What's yeah. your job? As people do. Yeah. <clears throat> what would you say? Well, you, you, there's, there's a career and what you want to make out of your life. And then there's the thing that pays you. And if you're blessed, the two, you know, somehow find a confluence. I, so for myself, in terms of like my job, I've been fortunate to start uh, a couple companies um, in the startup world, both wearing my hat. As you mentioned, I was a pharmacist and loved my practice. I started my career uh, in retail at Rite Aid uh, before I you know, quickly got burned out of that job and was able to move over to the clinical side of things. You know, when I graduated pharmacy school, it was really just a bachelor requirement. I took a clinical position as a bachelor's registered pharmacist, went back to do my PharmD uh, using my skills, um, and have always kind of created my own path in terms of really being non-traditional. Uh, I was always intrigued by the regulatory and legal side of things, and so I ended up going back to law school and then practiced at the FDA. Um, and I've been able to combine all of those skill sets, both academic, educational experience, uh, real-world experience, um, and then bridging all of that to be able to successfully launch an early stage R&D biotech company, uh, forming, uh, really developing novel antibodies, uh, while at the same time also creating a technology SaaS company uh, that's focused on rationalizing the broken regulatory processes uh, that healthcare professionals have to navigate through in order to practice their trade and deliver healthcare services, mm. both significantly impacting uh, the, you know, healthcare, uh, broadly, but both in very different, uh, veins. And really I've mm -hmm. tailored my experience, uh, towards being an expert in health regulations. I see. Oh, I'd love to dissect your two businesses a lot more, but I want to go in a little bit of a linear fashion through the timeline as far as <clears throat> what came first, just because your career path is so fascinating to me. You started off with a BS in pharmacy and you worked in Rite Aid. How long did that job last? I, I lasted about a year. Um, I was a pharmacy intern, um, was at CVS and then Rite Aid. Rite Aid just happened to pay more for students at the time. Uh, and then when I graduated, got licensed, you know, I started my own, uh, had my own store um, in New Jersey and lasted about a year before one of my good friends from pharmacy school called me and said, Hey, we have a, an immediate opening for a, a hospital pharmacist at Robert Wood Johnson mm -hmm. hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, and so I interviewed and, you know, again, I didn't have a PharmD, but, you know, I was able to adapt and be reliable and, you know, pass with not just the hard technical skills and the soft skills that are needed to be a hospitalist and then be ready to roll up my sleeves that job really impressed upon me how important pharmacists are in the overall delivery of healthcare services. And I don't even think after going through pharmacy school, I had a true appreciation of the role pharmacists played. You know, even to take a step back from that, Monica, I remember when I applied to pharmacy school, I didn't want to go. 
I didn't want to be a pharmacist. I um, actually, funny story, my dad checked the box. This was back when we had paper applications and you would fill it out and submit it to all the different schools and hard mail it in. Um, and, and there was a box, which school do you want to attend at Rutgers? Rutgers was like, oh, you know, why would I want to go to Rutgers? Um, you know, I wanted to be a liberal arts major, uh, geared towards maybe going to law school and a philosopher. I don't know what I wanted when I was 18. My dad happened to check the box that said pharmacy school. And well, lo and behold, I got in, which to me was a, frankly, a surprise because Rutgers at the time was one of the most uh, aggressive and difficult schools to get into. Um, and here I am, you know, I was a decent student. I wouldn't say the best, but I was pretty good. Got it. Getting into farm school. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be uh, when I grew up. So I said, well, this will help me define my path. And it wasn't until I got to Robert Wood did I see what a great choice I made uh, for a career. But I always kept asking the question why on so many different levels. Right. I would be very good at doing rounds, doing clinical assessments, you know, getting prescription, building relationships with the nursing team. Everything was interdisciplinary, which was so cool. The nurses, the doctors, the anesthesiologists, and as both specialists, primary care, and everyone that touched the hospitalist, internist, residents. Wow. Yeah, I can't begin to tell you how many residents, uh, medical resident careers I saved um, <laughs> as a pharmacist. Um, you know, yeah, that June, July months, right? They're critical. Um, and then they, we slowly became their best friends. Uh, and then I went back to do my PharmD at the time because I wanted to get more clinically sound and, you know, see you what the career of pharmacy could take me. I didn't just like it. I love this. Yeah. Okay. I loved it. Yeah. You know, so I was responding to codes. You know, I became I got to specialize in emergency medicine and ICU. Um, like I said, I was doing rounds with the uh, the MICU teams when I and then I shifted to doing some overnight work because when I went to law school, I was actually going to day school and at nights at, at well, nights actually, at the hospital. Rick, before I you mean, get to law school, <clears throat> I wanted to ask. So, okay. Yeah. So you're enjoying your job as a pharmacist and you were doing a quite clinical job in spite of not having a PharmD. So you said, I, I kind of love this. So I'm going to go back and complete my PharmD and you did so. And then you continued to work as a clinical pharmacist at that time, or did you immediately say, no, what I really want to do is law? Yeah, good question. Both. So I was actually doing my PharmD, which I did an executive you know, distance program uh, while doing my clinicals and other work at Robert Wood. I started on the day shift in the IV room. Uh, I can't begin to tell you a better place for a pharmacist to start their career. You know, much like when you're in retail, you know, every new innovative uh, tablet product that's coming out on the market, you know, things have changed since. Uh, but when you're working in a hospital, you see drugs that you've never seen before at the retail setting, and you really apply a lot of your skills. Uh, so I was doing that, then doing my PharmD, um, close to finishing it up. So I took my LSATs right when I graduated law uh, pharmacy school, uh, and then they're good for about five years. I actually sat on them for about the fifth year and then decided to apply because, you know, I did I did decent in my LSATs. I didn't want to retake it, but I was also burned out of school. And uh, wanted to take some time, you know, pay off mm -hmm. some student loans before embarking again uh, in another academic journey. So it sounds like you kind of always wanted to couple pharmacy and law. Well, you always wanted to go to law school. Your dad checked the box for pharmacy. You made the most of it. But in your heart of hearts, you always want to do law because you were interested in like the regulatory side of 
industries. Yes, yes. I was always fascinated by the law, um, really fascinated about how the law can empower um, empower people, empower demographics, empower groups. You know, in in my culture, much probably like yours, being a first generation Indian American, and really our roots started when my father immigrated to this country in 1969. And much like many immigrant stories, he only had a hundred dollars in his pocket. Um, while sending money back to India and uh, sponsoring a couple of his brothers, he was 19, didn't know a soul in this country before coming here. And, you know, we had to either make it or we didn't. Right. There wasn't really a safety net, per se. There wasn't generational wealth. There was nothing to fall back on. Um, so for me, um, you know, I knew the law could help empower our thinking, our assimilation. Um, and I was just so fascinated about how the law could be a tool for um, you know, both social justice and, and per cultural assimilation. I was, was fascinated by that. Uh, it wasn't until after I went to pharmacy school because I also, when I was 18, I was a typical 18 year old and I had no clue what I wanted to do. And my family always being in the sciences said, well, go to pharmacy school. Once you have a licensed profession, you know, you'll always have a job. At least you have a safety net, something to fall back on. That was very important for us, um, you know, having that safety net to fall back on, uh, which, you know, many generations of families that are in this country in America have, you know, us as a new generation did not have. Uh, and that was the impetus for me wanting to go to pharmacy school, always knowing that deep down I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Great story. Yeah. And so uh, ir to ironically, I don't practice yeah. either now. <laughs> go ahead. Well, yeah, but they they definitely seem like stepping stones for you. So um, the stepping stone of pharmacy and then law just dovetail together so beautifully into your, what I think is your first job after completing law school, right? Which is the FDA. That's right, right. So when I was at law school, I think, you know, traditionally those that had a scientific discipline uh, went to patent law. And I took all those classes and boy, that was cringe for me, um, you know, prosecuting or litigating patents and intellectual property and then sitting for the patent bar. I said, man, I didn't go to school for this long uh, to sit doing this type of paperwork. Um, but it really opened up my eye in terms of what the career pathways are. And again, as I mentioned, you know, non-traditional is probably the term that really defines me. I did end up... Uh, charting my own course, finding my own legal clerkship at the FDA in the commissioner's office. When I was in law school, I did a clerkship at the U.S. attorney's office and a clerkship at the FDA. Um, and then the project I worked on uh, went went over well with one of the associate commissioners. Um, and I was called in uh, for an interview on the compliance team. Um, and that was really, again, cultivating relationships and having long term connections with your mentors really helped to introduce me to my first job out of law school, which was a consumer safety officer at the FDA. So a hybrid regulatory council consumer safety officer role. And that sounds like kind of a cool job. So tell us a little bit about what you did as a consumer safety officer. It was a cool job. So being a consumer safety officer, this was a really cool job. So um, my first job was in the Office of Compliance with the Center of Drugs. Uh, and really what I was tasked to do was look at a lot of the drugs that were still on the marketplace as prescription products, but 
but what they called unapproved drugs. So now these are drugs that you'd be very familiar with, ones that have been on the market before the FDA regulations for safety and efficacy existed, however, have not been grandfathered in. Drugs like phenobarbital, epinephrine, morphine, atropine, very commonly used drugs that have just been around for so long, they circumvented the approval process. And because of some legal nuances in terms of administrative procedure, uh, they've not been removed from the market and also because many of them are medically necessary. I mean, can you imagine a world without epinephrine, uh, you know, in a code? And so the FDA was a little hamstrung. I was part of a team that was tasked with looking at the unapproved drugs um, and taking enforcement actions against the companies uh, that marketed them. Uh, one you may be familiar with was like Colchicine at the time. I was part of that agency action. Uh, Colchicine, you know, reconstituted itself into a branded drug once it went through approval process for, uh, for familial Mediterranean fever. I think that's what it was, mm. FMF. Um, and uh, and not for gout, like we commonly know. And and then you we all of a sudden at the FDA saw a massive price gouging, right? You have a, an approved culture scene now being sold for like five to ten dollars a pill when it was sold for like, you know, pennies a pill. And primarily because many people conflated the fact that these were quote unquote generic drugs or were they actually approved drugs. And even generic drugs have to go through the FDA approval process. And so I worked on that task force to start to remove a lot of these unapproved drugs from the market. Um, and then again, there were a lot of drugs that were purporting to be dietary supplements, but contained trace amounts of sildenafil. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I remember one called Rock Oops. Hard. Well, it had an analog of sildenafil, oh right? And it was sold in like gas stations. Um, you know, it was it was a cool, uh, cool job, you know, really good work from a public health perspective. Uh, but more importantly, it really introduced me into what compliance to the drug approval process is mm -hmm. and really got me interested um, in what is become a very globalized supply chain, looking at it more broadly in terms of the threats and vulnerabilities to our supply chain when it comes to medical products. Can I ask you one question, just because I'm super curious, why weren't those drugs, morphine, epinephrine, colchicine, grandfathered in? Like digoxin. Well, Monica, you're going to have to come to one of my law lectures about this one. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Right, right. So uh, they there is. A, so at the time, right, um, when safety was first introduced as a pre-market requirement for a drug to enter the market uh, past the sulfonilamide. Now, if there are pharmacists watching this, this is a great it might be even PTSD towards your pharmacy law lectures, but sulfonilamide tragedy is what gave rise to what we now know as the current Food and Drug Cosmetic Act, which is the 1938 Act is the good law right now, the legislative act that gave rise to um, the FDA and the first time in our country or, you know, historically the entire world, you saw a requirement where a company had to submit documents to get an approval by an agency before they could sell their wares and their goods, right? Imagine if you had a pencil and you wanted to bring a pencil onto the market. You're not sending it to a consumer safety agency to say, okay, your pencil is good. You can go sell it. You're just selling it. And you'd have product liability and other ways in which uh, the market would regulate itself uh, from a from a perspective. But what they found is that drugs are so critical to your public health, to the health of the patient, the individual, the person. There was such rampant fraud at the time uh, that, you know, they passed this act in order to introduce a pre-market approval. Well, drugs like phenobarbital, morphine, epinephrine, atropine, the list goes on. 
these were all drugs that have been on the market for colchicine. Hundreds of colchicine's been used for 400 years, right? It's not like drugs were invented because the FDA was invented. So how do you bring drugs that are already on in, on a you know national or state level distribution into fold for pre-market approval? So they had um, after the Efficacy Act in 1962, probably you remember that the Littlemine tragedy, which we narrowly avoided with the drug that was being used for morning sickness was a teratogen. Uh, we avoided it because of one really brilliant FDA reviewer, um, Francis mm. Kelsey, who Again, you imagine 1960s, a female reviewer at a predominantly male agency standing up against her superiors and saying, I don't feel comfortable to approve this. Thank God for heroes like her to fight against both the cultural norms and pushes, push her own, uh, you know, intelligence and assessment to the forefront to avoid uh, what ended up being a disaster in Europe with hundreds of babies being, uh, you know, deformed it through the teratogen, which she didn't find safety of, but she also didn't see that there was efficacy. They didn't have the tools for efficacy, able to convince Congress to pass laws to allow for that. So now you have all these drugs on the market. What do you do with them? They had a drug efficacy study implementation review. Again, you know, if the agency makes a determination that your drug is not effective, you can fight it through administrative procedures. And somehow here comes government bureaucracy. Some of these administrative procedures have been hung up in process land for the last 70 years. Now, what the agency can't do is remove them until at, at which time you have an administrative hearing. And so some of these drugs have just continued to be marketed uh, through, you know, purporting to be grandfathered, which none of them are. Um, mm. And I won't get into the whole legal lecture behind this. Um, but, you know, this is how they ended up staying on the market. And then, of course, as you know, many of these are still medically necessary drugs. There's anecdotal evidence of published literature, however, not sufficient enough to establish that they're generally recognized safe, as safe and effective, hence requiring an NDA, but there's no money in it. And so they didn't want to pay the money to get the NDA and do the clinical studies. And so they continue to market. And here we are. It's absolutely fascinating economics dilemma um, and not to um, torture our listeners too much, but I do have one more kind of law question, which is um, you mentioned that colchicine and the price gouging. <clears throat> I didn't realize that the FDA knew or cared about drug cost. They do regulate drug yeah. cost to a certain extent too. That's a great question. So, the answer is the short answer is no. The FDA does not regulate the cost of drugs in our country. It's bifurcated model where the agency regulates the product and then Centers for Medicaid Medicare is works towards price fixing or set fixing of of reimbursement for products. However, uh, the agency is very concerned about access to medicine and and uh, accessibility and availability of medicine, both on supply chain, protecting supply chain and accessibility. And so. It doesn't fall necessarily on deaf ears when price gouging has taken in. Now, can the does the agency have have much to do about it? Well, they could work in task force against arbitrage, black market, gray market products, um, and then folks that are trying to take advantage of of setting prices. They don't work on setting the prices, but they could maybe think twice before taking an action that creates a monopoly around a particular drug product that's been on the market, and that's kind of what's happened now to date. That's pretty cool. Um, although I don't recall them getting involved when PharmaBro bought 
pyrimethamine and jacked up the price from thirteen dollars to fifteen hundred overnight, or did they? That's right. Yeah, that might be for a different podcast. We can certainly unpack that one. Um, so a lot of the work that you did with the FDA pulled in your pharmacy background and your law background, but is that an option for just a plain pharmacist, like a PharmD like me to go into consumer safety like that? Or do I also need to get a JD, which I'm not willing to do at this juncture in life? Yeah, that's a great question. No, absolutely not. I mean, we, I worked with like I said, multidisciplinary teams, you know, it was what was a blessing about being at the FDA is that you get to work with so many disciplines. So I worked with a lot of PharmDs that were just either just bachelors of pharmacy or just PharmD. And I hate to say just, right? It's not to be couched or defined by any particular academic degree, but they were pharmacists. Uh, I worked with nurses, nurse practitioners, medical doctors. Um, some had law degrees or masters in public health. I worked very closely with many that were part of the public health services core. Um, you know, dentists. Uh, you, you know, it, again, everyone brings their interdisciplinary knowledge, skills, practice experience, educational experience, everything at the table to serve a particular mission. Um, and that's one of the benefits of working, uh, you know, for the government or a, or an agency like the FDA, where you're very mission driven and you're the mission being to promote and protect public health, uh, regulating and being one of the few health agencies that actually has can exert a regulatory authority. Right. They, they actually have teeth on enforcement. Um, I remember I took um, an action, two actions that I was in charge of. One was mefobarbital, which is like um uh, and, and it's sort of an analog of phenobarbital or a precursor that kind of hydrolyzes the part of it and turns into phenobar. Anyways, the product was being used very extensively by older individuals to control seizures, never had been approved. We decided that there were other products that were on the market that could similarly do the same job and took action to remove that. Well, you know, I got calls uh, from the company, people, you know, saying you, you've put me out of business, you know, and it, it affected the livelihood of many people. And so you're weighing that in terms of what actions you take uh, towards what your overarching public health goal is, and and it's to adhere to the compliance towards the, uh, let's say, the NDA process. So you are mission driven, you are doing the best you can to promote and protect public health. Um, and so really, to your question, which may have been a more simple question, I gave a long winded answer. Yes, you know, it's a blessing to have pharmacists, nurses, and all healthcare professionals working towards the same mission and goal. Oh, don't get me wrong. I am fascinated with methylbarbital every day when I wake up in the morning. No, just joking. Um, <clears throat> what kind of work does, do pharmacists do at the FDA? What are some other job positions? Yeah, there's a lot of jobs at the FDA. Um, for pharmacists. Uh, so I worked in compliance. So compliance would be, like I said, supply chain, counterfeit, drug shortages. Uh, there's pharmacists, literally pharmacists on every single one of these teams that I just mentioned. Um, there is a pharmacist involved with scientific investigations, clinical trial compliance, and that's just the compliance group. I was seconded, um, you know, part of my role at the FDA also, as I moved beyond a consumer safety officer, I was also got promoted up to being senior advisor for globalization to the commissioner 
Um, I took a secondment and represented the FDA at the World Health Organization for about nine months. Again, working on counterfeit supply chain, substandard spurious drugs, the supply chain and globalization. This was post 2008. We had a heparin crisis where there's oversulfated um, chondroitin sulfate coming out of pig farms in China that made it into the heparin supply chain and a finished product that was delivered to patients in hospitals in the U.S. that ended up dying because of the contamination. And a lot of this is what we call economically motivated. It was cheaper to add this, I guess, additional excipient, but it ended up killing people. And realizing that the agency really had to be brought up to speed with the globalization impact, that no drug is just made in the U.S. and given to U.S. patients. It's like a spaghetti bowl. So pharmacists are involved with international aspects uh, as well. Beyond compliance on a day-to-day level, you know, you're consistently working on the review of applications, right? Innovation's happening um, at such a fast pace, right? And you have to assure that the products that you're working on are safe and effective and meet the quality standards, right? That's, that's sort of the high-level bucket. And then when you start to get granular, FDA reviewers are looking at the entire spectrum of new innovative product lines that are coming down from non-clinical studies to clinical studies to pharmacokinetics. Pharmacists are involved in all of these disciplines, both on the regulatory side, clinical review side, kinetics side, pharmacology side. Uh, boy, oh boy, I mean, the, the FDA has an entire internship program for uh, pharmacy students, notwithstanding the real need to try to recruit pharmacists into their programs to provide both the clinical and uh, drug product characterization expertise. Um, so I could go on and on, and I'm only talking about drugs. Then you have the Center for Biologics, the Center for Devices, you know, where you're looking at wearables and digital health uh, on one spectrum, all the way to like your pacemakers and even more complex devices that keep people alive every day. Um, you have food. I mean, look at dietary supplements that are regulated under the Center for Food, right? You need pharmacists that are on the front lines of making recommendations on how dietary supplements can interact, whether it's from a drug dietary supplement interaction or making recommendations to their uh, patients or consumers on what choices to make. You need that insight. How do you regulate that? Do you regulate that? That's really the, the top line question. And then if you do, in what capacity? Um, understanding that the FDA is responsible for more than 25% of the GDP. Actually, beyond that, we didn't even talk about tobacco products, even bigger than that, uh, where pharmacists do play a role. I remember, I won't get, I won't digress. I sometimes go on a sidetrack, but I was, remember when the uh, Legislative Act passed standing up the Center for Tobacco Products, there was like a team of five of us that were sit, sitting around and I was approached to see if I wanted to join the Center for Tobacco, where it was like a group of like five people. Now it's a group of like 500 people uh, when it first launched. But, um, you know, there's just, Monica, I could sit here for hours telling you the number of jobs. But like I said, I can tell you they're very fortunate to have pharmacists and the discipline of pharmacy and those that have experience. So don't think just because you worked in retail, all of a sudden I can't get a job in at the FDA. It's actually the opposite. That real world experience plays a significant role into your thinking. Uh, which you need to apply your job to effectuate the mission that everyone is working towards. Well, it's obvious to me that you're extremely passionate about the work that the FDA does and you have the knowledge to excel and that's why you became a chief at the FDA. But then shortly thereafter, you moved out of the FDA into the DC Department of Health. Can you tell us a little bit about that move, what instigated it and what you're hoping to gain? 
Yeah, you know, well, let me start with this. Uh, the two, you know, proudest moments of my professional career was the day that I got my FDA offer letter and the day I submitted my resignation letter from government. Um, and the reason is because I, I was able to spend about a decade in government, um, love that experience, lean on that experience every single day. But again, remember, I, I mentioned I'm an entrepreneur at heart and uh, a government bureaucratic job just didn't give me the opportunity to explore that entrepreneurial spirit that I always had. But to get to your point about D.C., yeah, an opportunity did pop up with the new um, well, the mayor at the time. So one of the gentlemen's path that I crossed doing my international travels uh, or my international work was the former assistant secretary of health under President Bush, um, Dr. Joxel Garcia. Um, he was responsible for uh, when he was the health director in Connecticut for the anthrax response. Um, again, SARS at the time response back in the early 2000s uh, and then was the assistant secretary of health twice Senate confirmed. Uh, once he left his, uh, he was an admiral too. When he left his post, he was uh, selected to be the DC director of health. Um, and he was looking for a strong deputy to be the chief health enforcement officer. And he approached me, knowing the knowledge that I had. And, and uh, you know, it was an opportunity that took me, again, the regulatory framework for healthcare is so big, right? And FDA plays a big, significant component. But health actually is more effectuated at a state level than it is at a federal level. And again, I won't get into the legal context of that, but even when COVID hit, majority of the authorities are vested in state, what we call state police power under the 10th Amendment. And so a lot of the real boots to the ground work for delivering public health is done at the state level. DC operating much like a state, I was able to go into looking at regulatory frameworks of hospitals, health systems, pharmacies, and all the professional boards, you know, I got to be the one to sign off on someone's pharmacy or medical or nursing license. And I got to be the one that got to enforce and suspend or in some cases revoke someone's uh, license to practice their healthcare service. And so it was an opportunity that for me, expanding my knowledge in regulatory compliance in healthcare, uh, something that you just couldn't do at the FDA. It was a great opportunity. And so you know, I think it's funny. A lot of people say, well, isn't that a step down? You're at the federal level. And now you're going down to a district or a state or a local level. And I, I say that's really the wrong way to look at it. Health is delivered at the state and local levels first. You've got to understand how that works and then understand if you're talking about how much money you make or professional career. Sure. People want to step up to a federal levels because of job consistency and security, et cetera. Um, and, and you do, you have a much more job security at the federal level. If you're really looking at what it means to deliver public health value, and I was a public health practitioner, um, the local level is where you can, you, you really effectuate strong public health. And I can't, be, again, maybe for another podcast, but I can't begin to tell you the number of projects that we worked on from medical marijuana to delivery of services to shutting down nasty restaurants in DC to revoking a license of a nurse that was sexually abusing patients, the real world enforcement value that we got to do in very short period of time, the F FBI rate of healthcare fraud of home health agencies, transforming how healthcare is being delivered um, at a local level, the real services that impact patients and people uh, or pharmacies, um, that was done in the district. Um, and it was one of the most abundant amount of experience I was able to get in such a short period of time. 
That's fascinating. And I think that we could have an entire podcast of just stories of things that you saw and did or stopped (laughs) during that role. And I also think that this is what planted a seed for one of your current businesses, right? Because you're very much involved in the regulation of professions, both to make sure people were doing the right thing, but also to make sure they weren't doing too much. Um, And you were the first person who told me personally that I didn't have to take the DC law exam to work for the federal government. So I personally thank you for that. But yeah, did you get the sense that there's too much regulation and bureaucracy? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Let me see if I can unpack this in very simple terms. I was actually just talking to an investor earlier today, trying to explain this. Um, The way healthcare is delivered since the Affordable Care Act passed um, for the last, what, 13, 14 years now is shifted towards evidence-based, value-based care. Um, And in order to hit those KPIs for value-based cares, you have to have interdisciplinary teams, undoubtedly, right? So everything has moved towards algorithmic medicine. I don't necessarily agree with it, but this is the shift that it's moving towards. And when you have algorithmic medicine, um, EHRs and other data drivers, you have to have different disciplines providing different services. You have to have interdisciplinary teams. However, when you take a step back and then ask the question, well, let's look at how you became that healthcare professional, right? Let's say you're a registered dietitian, a licensed clinical social worker, chiropractor, a pharmacist, a nurse, a medical doctor. Um, all of these could be part of delivery of care for one particular patient um, and the, and be responsible for their outcomes and be reimbursed based on those outcomes. Let's say if you're a accountable care organization, but take a step back and how did each one get to their professional goals, right? They had to go to school. That school is in a silo, right? You go to nursing school, you go to pharmacy school, you don't go to some interdisciplinary healthcare school, right? That's not, that doesn't exist. There's no such thing. You go to medical school. Then when you go to the regulatory agency or the boards, you go to the board of pharmacy to get your license to practice pharmacy, the board of medicine, et cetera. Okay, that's all great. Now, what happens when you're in healthcare organization and you have to be responsible for the compliance of the licensure of all those disciplines or provider compliance? And and then put that on steroids. Let's say a pandemic hits like COVID and all of a sudden, care is being performed virtually through these like Zoom platforms and you want to deliver care and you can and tools have advanced, right? We talked about medical devices and remote monitoring tools. You have to be licensed in the state that the patient that you're seeing is, right? Now you have to cross state lines. It would be like a truck driver going from New Jersey to California, but stopping in every single motor vehicle commission to pick up a license for every state that they entered that's exactly what's happening with the practice of healthcare services. Now, am I saying we should federalize the process? Absolutely not. The Tenth Amendment gives, and for for very good reason, the rights for the states to exert their police power. And the police power has to have a way to issue a license in order for, the, for them to have legal li- like hooks. Like I said, I I was able to enforce and revoke licensure of bad acting nurses and doctors and others. Right. So you have to have that legal hook in order to enforce against and give a privilege to that person to practice that trade. Okay, but can you apply technology to break down the silos to create interoperability 
for those systems. And that's exactly the birth of Licentia, my company was. And it's really a technology platform to help break down those barriers while empowering states to retain their legal rights for the licensure and regulation of the healthcare professionals. That's pretty cool. Um, can it help me not have to get a license in DC, Maryland, and Virginia as a pharmacist in the DMV area? Well, it can't help you do that, but we can do it for you. Um, and that's one of the benefits of the service meets tech that we've launched. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we work with thousands uh, of providers every day with that exact question. Cool. I love this company. But before we go into too much detail about your companies that you started, I wanted to really hear your story about running to be part of the U.S. Senate. Like, that is amazing. What made you think you wanted to do this? And what was that road like? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And um, yeah, it's, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've lived many lives. Um, but all of them interrelated, you know, um, and so I started out. So as I mentioned, you know, when my father first came to this country and he only had $100 in his pocket, we, we didn't have much. I mean, we were pretty poor in India, um, you know, bad business dealings with my grandfather's businesses, among others, being one of six brothers. Uh, my father was uh, we came to this country looking for those streets paved of gold, wanting to live that American dream. And what I really didn't understand is that. Um, you know, I, I became, you know, maybe overly educated, uh, started to gain a lot of experience. And what I didn't understand, especially in my work at the government level and then in the private sector, is that how as a as a country have we not been able to break and solve the problems of cycles of poverty? Um, mm -hmm. I never understood that. I said, you know, when you're looking at a city like Newark, New Jersey, where I went to law school, graduated, the, my opponent, Senator Cory Booker, who I ran against, was the mayor at the time and my commencement speaker. And I met him many times. What, you know, where is their, their altruism versus egotism? When does public service become personal service? And I saw that with the amount of time public servants spent in, spend in office, Somehow something shifts and they become multimillionaires and the real root cause of why they go to office begins to shift. Uh, and this, you know, is not really a political party type of issue. This is more like a public service to private service type of issue. And and so I started to look at the failures in policies that kept people trapped in these cycles of poverty, not being able to break free. You know, this is not the same country when my father came here in 1969, you know, coming off this, the heels of the race riots, looking at the, you know, post-segregation era and realizing that we are like, God, like, you know, almost more, almost close to 60 years past that. And yet we're still living in this, you know, archaic way of thinking you know, in this real one of diversity, creating segregation policies and putting ourselves back to like 1969 again. Um, and rather than empowering people, we continue to suppress people. And, you know, and, I, and one of the things that I found is that money is not always the answer. So I started asking all these questions um, and I, I took a quick program through a organization called Empower America. Um, who uh, Tim Scott, uh, current, you know, candidate for president, senator from South Carolina is on the board. And he looked at me and he said, Rick, 
you have to ask yourself why. Why are you running? Why do you want to run? And you need to be able to articulate that because voters need to connect to you. Um, and, you know, at the time, I never really thought, could I run for office? I mean, what am I? I'm a pharmacist. I'm an attorney. I worked at the FDA. You know, these are like politicians that make careers out of politics. I don't know anything about politics. Um, I talked to my wife and she said, you know, rather than trying to get candidates to influence that change, why don't you be that change? And I said, you know, I never kind of looked at it that way. I never really looked at it that way. Could I do it? And in this regard, I'll tell you, Monica, ignorance was bliss. I didn't know shit from Shinola when it came to uh, politics. And I worked with the consultant. I, you know, as, as with my entrepreneurial spirit, just like much like starting up a business, so was the campaign. Um, except in this case, the product you're selling is yourself, which can be very challenging because you're constantly trying to toot your own horn, which I was never comfortable with. Met with some consultants and they liked me and thought that I had a good package to offer. Um, and the rest was kind of history. I threw my hat into the ring in, in a crowded primary, not knowing what was going to happen. And the truth is, you know, I didn't think much would happen other than to get my voice out there. And I believed in my policies. Uh, shortly recognizing that campaigning is much more than just having a strong belief in a policy platform um, and, you know, somehow walked away uh, winning the nomination handily and going on to be the highest vote getter in the history of the Republican Party for the state of New Jersey, becoming the first Asian American, the first Indian American, the first South Asian American for either Democrats or Republicans in the history of the state of New Jersey. So that well, that's mean, my clearly, poli like, political story. Incredibly smart, articulate, so knowledgeable. And, you know, when you talk about the cycle of poverty, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, progressive Democrat or a Republican. It's hard not to get behind that. Um, so I I feel like it makes sense that you got as far as you got. And then I didn't realize you ran against Cory Booker for the election, which, yeah, He's he's really well known, um, so that's that's pretty tough. Candidate yeah, and and I held I held him to fifteen points, so um, you know, it, it was uh, well, and and we won't even you know again for maybe a, another podcast, but you know to talk about campaigning in the time of COVID, um, you know this was mm. the twenty twenty election, obviously very controverted, with President Trump at the top of the ticket, controversy in and of itself with that, but mm -hmm. just even during the election, the response to COVID, campaigning during COVID, the legal procedural changes of bypassing a legislative branch to executive fiat to change the way we vote, which influenced the outcomes of the election. Um, I'm actually working on a book about this, but this is really one like literally seeing history being made in the moment, never forgetting, you know, March of 2020, uh, when that happened and a lot of things started to just shut down. And what do you do as a candidate for a statewide race? Um, but yes, yes, I, I do remember my uh, camp, my debate against Cory Booker at the end. I did invite him, uh, invite him to dinner. So we we've parted, remain friends. And I think just like sparring in any battle, whether you're a boxer, wrestler or in politics, you can be on polar sides of issues, but you have to walk away with decorum, professionalism um, and be a gentleman at the end of the day. And I think that's really important. We lose a lot of that in politics. And uh, as a, I guess, wearing a hat as a politician, you know, it's important. I always advocate for that for any aspiring um, person looking to enter the political ring.
Mm-hmm. You shake hands and say good game. Um, <clears throat> That's it. So after that, you start your two companies. One's a biotech company and the other is addressing, you know, regulation within um, profession, professions. And we probably won't have too much time and delve into depth about those, but um, can you, can we turn this a little bit to hear a little, your advice to new professionals or to people like me, seasoned professionals who are hoping to pivot in their career? Like for you, the sky was the limit. You went for it. What advice do you have to others to achieve what you've achieved, which is the dream job? Yeah. When it's, well, the dream job is what you make it. Um, don't do anything you're not passionate about, but be realistic of what you can and can't do. My father wanted me to be a pharmacist, not because I wanted to be, but because he wanted me to have a safety net. And so uh, oftentimes I hear from motivational speakers and others, you know, do what you're passionate about. And that's not the reality for so many people. What if you're a single mother or single father raising three kids and you have no safety net and you have to put food on the table? There's a reality of what you can do and what you can accomplish, but always be confident in what you can do. One of the biggest areas I've seen myself included that you get held back in um, is that you become critical and become because you're the movie star of your own movie, when in reality, not many people are focused on you. I have throughout my journey have had a lot of failures. And there was a time I remember when I was finally able to look past them as not failures, but stepping stones towards success. In fact, if you didn't have failures, you wouldn't know what success is. Maybe you failed a pharmacy class. Maybe you got shitty grades in school. Maybe you, you know, you got fired from a job. All Whatever the case is, it, 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 it doesn't matter if your mindset is focused on what your end goal is. And you always have to step back and ask yourself why. You got to have a reason why you're doing what you're doing. You have to have a reason what drives you. You know, is it that you want a cushy federal job at the FDA uh, so you have job security because you want to raise your family? That's great. Then ask yourself why. It's because I want to put have a good salary and, you know, raise a, a family. Um, or it's because I like skiing on on the weekends and I need enough income to be able to do that. If that's your why, go for it and let that drive you. Um, You know, if your goal is public health, then figure out how you want to get there. And the last piece I'll say is that there are no shortcuts to starting a business, to achieving professional success, whatever you define that success to be. There just aren't, you know, I have tried as hard as I can to take as many shortcuts when available, and none of them have ever panned out until you get to a point where you realize there's no such thing as a shortcut. Whatever you do, be committed for the long haul. Don't give up because, you know, when they say that, you know, don't give up, you continue to practice, you'll be the best that you can be in what you're looking to do. What they, what people sometimes don't tell you is that you're going to end up losing people through attrition as well. So if you continue to grind, not only will you be success, will you succeed in what you're doing? People are just going to drop out. And by attrition and by your own successes, you're going to continue to rise. So you've got to be in it for the long haul. Um, there are no shortcuts and you got to be passionate about your why. Why is it that you're doing 
what you're doing. And if you can marry all of those things, then you're going to, you know, live a happy life. And then it's beyond just how much you make and what your income is. Look at, look at doctors right now. They're more than 75% of them or 70% of them. HRQ put out a study recently. They're burned out of their jobs, right? I mean, doctors for the most part make pretty good money, right? Um, are they happy in what they're doing? Are they motivated? Are they successful? Or are they begrudgingly getting out of bed? Um, drive to your why, but make sure that it's profitable for you for the lifestyle that you want. Mm, beautifully said. Um, last question. What's next for you? Yeah. Well, I haven't achieved succeeding on solving the cycle, breaking the cycles of poverty. So, you know, my job's not done yet. Um, my immediate goals, you know, two businesses, I want to be successful. We're solving a lot of problems. We have the potential to solve a lot of problems for immunodeficient patients. And so my biotech company is going to continue to thrive and I'm going to push the team as hard as I can to get that. And that's our mission there on the digital health platform. You know, we're breaking down barriers to services and helping reduce administrative burden and, and helping with the burnout problem. So we're going to keep moving there. Um, and politics is certainly not over for me. Um, you know, you, you can also, you can't take on, you know, bite off more than you can chew. I think, you know, my plate is really pretty full. And with three boys at home, my heart is pretty full too. And so with both of those things, as they start to get a bit older, the businesses start to mature. And as time comes on, you know, my wife knows what she signed up for. Um, and she too equally on her own, um, on her own right is uh, quite ambitious and successful in her own way. But, um, I'll re-enter the political ring, so to speak. Uh, and I won't stop until I can achieve, achieve my why. Yeah. You have like 30 or 40 years left. Look at our presidential candidates. You have a few decades. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Age is but a number. Yeah. I, I want to thank you so much for your time, but also for such like great information, interesting, fascinating stories, your career path for sharing it all with us today. Thank you so much, Rick. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Career Reconstituted, how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job. My name is Monica Mehta. The intro music is Balanced by MindServer Unlimited from Epidemic Sound, and the cover art graphic was made by Daphne Kiplinger. To our listeners, thank you for spending your hour with us in a world where time is a rare commodity. If you have any comments, questions, or recommendations for interviewees, please get in touch via Spotify on the episode's note page or Instagram. Look for a handle career underscore reconstituted. And if you like the show, please subscribe or leave a rating. Until the next time, bye friends.